Part 4 Calm and Insight Samadhi In his expositions of the practice of samadhi, Luang Po usually preferred to avoid speaking in terms of jhanas. Instead, he would refer to the various mental states known as jhana factors that constitute these jhanas. His reasoning was that the jhana factors such as bliss, sukha or equanimity were directly experienceable by the meditator, whereas jhanas were simply names for different constellations of these factors. They were, in other words, conventions, and as such they could lead the mind away from rather than towards awareness of the present reality. If the mind is clear, then it's just like sitting here normally and seeing things around you. Closing the eyes becomes no different from opening them. Seeing while the eyes are closed becomes the same as seeing with the eyes open. There's no doubt about anything at all, merely a sense of wonder. How can these things be possible? It's unbelievable, but there they are. There will be sustained appreciation vichara, arising spontaneously in conjunction with rapture, happiness, a fullness of heart and lucid calm. Subsequently, the mind will become even more refined and it will be able to discard the meditation object. Now vitakka, the lifting of the mind onto the object will be absent and so will vichara. We say the mind discards vitakka and vichara. Actually, it's not so much that they're discarded. What is really meant is that the mind becomes more concentrated, more compact. When it's calm, then vitakka and vichara are too coarse to stay within it. And so it's said that they are discarded. Without vitakka lifting the mind to the object and vichara to appreciate its nature, there is simply this experience of repleteness bliss and one-pointedness, ekagata. I don't use the terms first, second, third and fourth jhana. I speak only of lucid calm and of vitakka, vichara, rapture, bliss and unity and of their progressive abandonment until only equanimity remains. This development is called the power of samadhi the natural expressions of the mind that has realized lucid calm. So there is a gradual movement in stages that depends on constant and frequent practice. Once, Luang Po was asked about the relationship between the first four jhana factors and the fifth, ekagata, usually translated into Thai as meaning single-focused and into English as one-pointed. He replied that ekagata was like a bowl and the other four factors were like the fruit in the bowl. A cat watching a mouse hole has a kind of samadhi and so does a safe cracker. But theirs is a natural, amoral concentration of instinct and desire. Not the samadhi that issues from a disciplined gathering of inner forces and which provides the foundation of wisdom. The Buddha distinguished between right samadhi Samma Samadhi, an essential element of the path to liberation, and Rong Samadhi, Micha Samadhi, which leads away from it. Luang Por explained that the term Rong Samadhi included any state of calm that lacked the awareness necessary to create the foundation for insight. Samadhi can be divided into two kinds, Rong Samadhi and Right Samadhi. Take good notice of this distinction. In wrong samadhi, the mind is unwavering. It enters a calmness which is completely silent and lacking all awareness. You can be in that state for a couple of hours or even all day, but during that time, you have no idea where you've got to or what your state of mind is. This is wrong samadhi. It's like a knife that you've sharpened well and then just put away without using. 
you gain no benefit from it. It's a deluded calm that lacks alertness. You think that you've reached the end of the practice of meditation and don't search for anything more. It's a danger, an enemy. At this stage, it's dangerous to you because it prevents wisdom from arising. There can be no wisdom without a sense of moral discrimination. Right samadhi could be known by the clarity of awareness. No matter how deep right samadhi becomes, it is always accompanied by awareness. There is a perfect mindfulness and alertness, a constant knowing. Right samadhi is a kind of samadhi that never leads you astray. This is a point that practitioners should clearly understand. You can never dispense with the knowing. For it to be right samadhi, the knowing must be present from the beginning right until the end. Please keep observing this. On another occasion, he said that inner peace could be divided into two kinds, coarse and subtle. The coarse kind occurred when the meditator identified with the bliss that arose from samadhi practice and assumed the bliss to be the essential element of the peace. The subtle peace was the fruit of wisdom and it occurred when the experience of the mind itself as that which knows all transient, pleasant and unpleasant experiences was understood to be the true peace. The pleasant and the unpleasant are states of being states we are born into, expressions of attachment. As long as we attach to the pleasant or unpleasant, there can be no liberation from samsara. The bliss of samadhi is not true in a peace. That peace comes through dwelling in the awareness of the true nature of the pleasant and unpleasant without attachment. Thus, it is taught that the mind that lies beyond the pleasant sukha and the unpleasant, dukkha, is the true goal of Buddhism. Sometimes Luang Po made use of the commentarial division of samadhi into three levels, as these were clearly distinguishable on the basis of duration and intensity. Momentary, kanika samadhi, the initial short-lived intervals of calm, experienced as the mind becomes focused on its object. Access, Upajara Samadhi, the state in which the five hindrances have been overcome, but not securely so. There is still some background movement in the mind, but it's not distracting. And absorption, Appana Samadhi, the deepest level of Samadhi. A bright stillness in which no sense data appears to the mind or is so fleeting and peripheral as to be inconsequential. Access samadhi is the state in which the wisdom faculty functions most fluently. It precedes and succeeds attainment of absorption samadhi. The access that follows absorption is a more potent base for wisdom development than that which precedes it. Luang Po compared the mind in access samadhi to a chicken in a coop, not completely still, but moving in a clearly defined area and unable to run off at will. On other occasions, he said it is as if the mind is enclosed within a glass dome. The mind is aware of sense impressions, but it is not affected by them. It is the state, he said, in which the mind can see things in their true light. Having abided in the state of complete lucid calm for a sufficient time, the mind withdraws from it to contemplate the nature of external conditions in order to give rise to wisdom. Thinking and Examination The common Thai word bicharana can mean consider, reflect upon, contemplate, examine or investigate and is found extensively in the teachings of the Thai forest masters. On some occasions, Lung Po equated bicharana with dhamma the investigation of Dhamma that arises in dependence on mindfulness and constitutes the second of the seven enlightenment factors, the Bojanga. 
all Buddhists are encouraged to reflect on or picharana the truths of old age, sickness, death, the inevitability of separation from all that is loved, and the law of gamma. By doing so again and again, these truths sink into the mind and become elements of the right view that must underlie effective meditation practice. Picharana is also used in the context of discursive meditation practices to mean the examination of a theme of Dhamma in a coherent and disciplined manner. Whereas the nature and role of Picharana in discursive meditations is straightforward, meditators can often doubt the part it plays in developing insight into the three characteristics which constitutes the culmination of Buddhist meditation practices. What degree of intentionality was Luang Por advocating when he instructed his disciples to picharana the three characteristics? How could meditators be sure that they were not merely thinking about the three characteristics rather than developing insight into them? It's a little bit hard to appreciate this because of its similarity to mental proliferation. And when thoughts arise, you may assume that your mind is no longer calm. In fact, the thoughts and perceptions that occur at this time arise within the calm. Examination that takes place within the calm does not disturb it. Sometimes the body may be taken up for examination. That doesn't mean that you start thinking or speculating. It's a process that occurs naturally in that state of calm. There is awareness within the calm, calm within the awareness. If it was merely mental proliferation, it would not be calm, it would be disturbing. This isn't proliferation. It's something that happens in the mind as a result of the calm and is called examination, picharana. Wisdom arises right here. Luang Por clarified this point in conversation with a visiting group of American Dhamma teachers. He said that ordinary thinking could be distinguished by the fact that although it might remain focused on a topic, it was coarse and lacking in penetration. When the mind became calm, the examination, the picharana, arose naturally as a kind of awareness that while possessing some of the characteristics of thinking, was of a different order. Wise reflection on the three characteristics could be distinguished by the fact that it remained uncorrupted by mental proliferation, was always wholesome, and caused defilements to fade from the mind. Mere thinking, on the other hand, becomes absorbed by defilements and contributes to their increase. The examination that Luang Por was advocating was distinguished by the letting go of attachments. Ordinary thinking has already been filtered out. If you don't know the examination for what it is, it will turn into conceptual thought. If you do know, it will turn into wisdom, that is, it will look on everything that arises as impermanent, unsatisfactory and not self. This wisdom or wise reflection, he said, would gradually mature into vipassana. In contrast to much contemporary use of the term, Luang Por tended to use vipassana to refer to the insight that arises from wise reflection, rather than the reflection itself. Vipassana was not, he said, something contrived, not something you did. Vipassana was the discernment of the three characteristics that arose naturally in the mind when all the necessary causes and conditions for it had been cultivated. The intensity of this clear seeing could vary from a weak insight to a comprehensive vision of the way things are. The degree of calm necessary before this investigation of the three characteristics could take place was not measurable. When Lung Po was asked how much calm is needed, he replied, as much as is necessary. In other words, meditators were to proceed by trial and error and closely observe the results of their efforts until they knew for themselves. If the contemplation degenerated into mental proliferation, then the mind was obviously not strong enough to do the work of wisdom. Meditators had different faculties. 
Some people found it easy to let go of thinking, but found that the very qualities that made such letting go possible also retarded the cultivation of wisdom. Others of a more reflective bent found that their mind's gift for contemplation prevented them from entering deep states of samadhi, but they were able to penetrate the truth through a close, focused attention on the conditioned nature of phenomena. To illustrate this point, Luang Por adapted two terms from the suttas, Jetu Vimutti, which means liberation of mind, and Panya Vimutti, liberation through wisdom. He applied these terms to two paths of practice, one that emphasized the power of mind, i.e. samadhi, and the other that emphasized wisdom. While wisdom liberation character types were especially sharp and perceptive, the mind liberation character types needed to take their time and go over the same ground many times before they understood. He gave an analogy. It's like two people going to look at a cloth pattern for a few minutes. One of them understands the pattern immediately and can go away and reproduce it from memory. This is liberation through wisdom. The other person the mind liberation character, has to sit and ponder on the details of the pattern and go back for further checks. With mind liberation, you have to work with the mind a fair amount. You have to develop quite a lot of samadhi. The first person doesn't need to do all that. He looks at the design, understands the principle, and then goes off and draws it himself. He has no doubts. Both paths reach the goal, but they have different features. Liberation through wisdom is always accompanied by mindfulness and alertness. When anything emerges in the mind, then it knows. It knows and then lets go with ease. The mind liberation person can't see things as they emerge in that way. He has to investigate them, which is also a valid path. Know your own character. In the first case, some people may not realize that there is samadhi present. You walk along observing, and samadhi, meaning firm stability of mind, is inherently present. For someone with wisdom, it's not difficult. He just develops enough samadhi to create a foundation. It's like students reaching grade 12 at school. Now they can choose which subject they want to specialize in. Whoever wants to go on to study agriculture does that and so on. It's the point of separation. Samadhi is the same. It reaches its destination in the same way. The work of wisdom. If the mind was able to enter access samadhi, but consistently refused to go deeper, then the investigation of phenomena could begin. The theme that Luang Por would usually suggest to investigate at this point was the 32 parts of the body, or else the first five, head hair, body hair, nails, teeth and skin, or whichever part suits one. In meditation, it's not necessary to visualize a lot of things. We visualize only things that will give rise to wisdom. We need to look from the top of the head right down to the soles of the feet, and from the soles of the feet up to the top of the head. What is this? How real is it? Why do people attach to it so tenaciously? Why are we so concerned about it? What's the reason? What does this body consist of? We investigate all these things until we see them in their true light as just that much. As soon as you see that, understand that, then the grasping onto things as, oh, I love this so much, or oh, I hate it so much, withdraws from the mind. Some meditators would find that the investigation of the body, or the arising and passing away of sense data, would give rise to a rapture that would push the mind over the edge into a state of lucid calm. The mind 
would then alternate between resting and recharging its powers in the lucid calm and doing the work of wisdom. A common anxiety was that with the development of deep samadhi, the bliss and sense of completeness that would ensue would be too absorbing to abandon in order to investigate the three characteristics. Lung Po's answer was that it was indeed a genuine danger for meditators with wrong view or who developed samadhi in an imbalanced way. However, when the time was ripe, and with the meditator's emphasis placed firmly on mindfulness and alertness, samadhi, if correctly developed, would turn naturally to the work of wisdom. Look after what you've already developed and intensify your mindfulness. If you give more importance to mindfulness than to anything else, then you won't go wrong. It's the correct way to put forth effort. If your mindfulness is still not fully matured, you must try to increase it so that you have the measure of everything that occurs in your mind. Knowledge will arise whenever mindfulness becomes clear and bright because wisdom depends on this ability to be aware of everything that passes through your mind. So that's it. If you have mindfulness, it will give birth to wisdom and you will clearly see and understand. Without mindfulness, you don't know where your mind has gone. Develop as much mindfulness as you can. It's of immense value in upholding your awareness and maintaining it on the path of peace. Mindfulness is the Buddha himself supporting and cautioning us. We become Buddha-like when we have mindfulness because the mind is awake. It knows, it sees and it's restrained. Restraint and composure arise through mindfulness. Wherever defilements still lurk unseen, it's because the flaws in your mindfulness allow them to evade you. But whenever mindfulness becomes clear, then the mind and your wisdom become radiant. So don't make too much out of things. Don't attach to ideas of self and other. Just keep putting forth effort. My advice is to simply carry on like that. And as long as nothing comes up, then there's no need for any investigation. Carry on normally as if you were walking along a road or sweeping the house. When you're sweeping, you keep going without looking around at anything else. It's only if someone calls your name and you know that there's some business to be seen to that you look up. Without interruptions, you just carry on with your sweeping. Similarly, in meditation, only when something comes up should you investigate. Otherwise, merely contemplate your present experience. Simply maintain the mindfulness to be aware of that. If nothing comes up, then rest at ease. But that doesn't mean just letting things go their own way and ignoring them. There is care and attention. You're aware of whatever passes through the mind, but you don't need a lot of investigation. When something impinges at one of the sense doors, and in turn impinges on the mind, then keep watch on it. If you don't lose sight of it, you'll see it as just that much. And then you can return to where you were. Don't run away from that place. Because if you do, before long, you'll find yourself carried off to heaven and hell. Be careful. Lung Po illustrated this point with a simile. Meditators should be like a spider at the center of its web. The spider remains still and wakeful until an insect gets caught in the web. It then darts out, deals with the insect and returns to its still space. One common view of meditation practice is that the deeper levels of samadhi are unnecessary for liberation, that momentary samadhi provides a sufficient base for the development of vipassana. When asked about this on one occasion, Lung Po replied with an analogy. 
you have to walk all the way to Bangkok so that you know what Bangkok is like. Don't go just as far as Koran. Even if you're going to go and live in Koran, go on to Bangkok. Then you'll understand exactly how developed Koran is. Go all the way to Bangkok and you'll have passed through Ubon, Koran and Bangkok. So with Samadhi, if your mind will go all the way, then let it, so that it can know the whole Samadhi lineage. Access Samadhi is the same as going only as far as Koran. Extending the analogy, he compared the briefness of momentary Samadhi to running through a town, and the longer duration of Access Samadhi to strolling about the town on frequent visits, repeating his frequent definition of that state as examination within the peace. Sometimes the mind stops at one point of the examination and enters into Appana. At that moment, it abandons Kanika and Upajara. It abandons everything and goes deep inside, where it's released from all things. But that Appana develops from Kanika and Upajara Samadhi. You have to pass through them first, otherwise you won't reach it. Although Luang Po occasionally made use of Pali technical terms, it was not his preferred way of talking about the mind. On being asked how a meditator should assess what level of samadhi had been reached, he replied that it was better to be simply aware of the state of mind itself without reaching for its Pali title. Whatever level it is, the clear awareness that your mind is in a state of lucid calm will suffice. Clearly see that the mind has truly stopped. Are you confident that the mind is pure and bright? You have to be your own guarantor of that. With such an awareness, you don't have to worry about whether it's Appana or Kanika or whatever. Don't bother with all of that, it's a waste of time. It's better to simply look at your mind and the truth of what you see. Samatha and Vipassana In the Theravada tradition, most of the discourse concerning the two chief aspects of Buddhist meditation practice, the calming of the mind and the cultivation of wisdom, has revolved around the terms Samatha and Vipassana. Samatha means tranquility, serenity, lucid calm. Vipassana literally means clear seeing and refers to insight into the three characteristics of existence. Although the Buddha himself did not use these terms with any great frequency, they gained much prominence in the centuries following his death. Their meaning expanded to include not only the states themselves, but also the practices directly aimed at cultivating them. Focusing on a mantra, for example, came to be called a samatha practice, whereas investigating the impermanent nature of feelings, a vipassana practice. The two terms have long been the subject of scholarly controversy. Disagreements have tended to center on the relationship between the two, in particular, as mentioned in an earlier section, the extent to which the lucid calm of samatha must be developed before an authentic vipassana insight can occur. When referring to these terms, Luang Po would speak of them as two aspects of practice that were developed in unison rather than two separate entities. Generally, Luang Po would use samatha and samadhi, vipassana and wisdom, interchangeably. Just as an axe needed to be made with both sufficient weight and sharpness to do its job, so the mind that could penetrate the truth of things needed both stability and discernment. Nevertheless, given that the focus in the early stages of practice is suppression of the hindrances and, in its culminating phase, insight into the nature of things, Luang Po recognized a shift of emphasis which he would characterize as an organic process of maturation. It occurred the way, he said, that an unripe mango became ripe, or a child became an adult. From one point of view, 
the adult might be seen as an altogether different person to the child, and from another, as an evolved version of the same person. In a similar but more earthy analogy, Luang Po compared the relationship to that between food and excrement. Luang Po also coined the terms pacification of mind and pacification of defilements to clarify his view of the necessary relationship between samatha and vipassana. When we develop samadhi, we pacify the mind. But the life of the pacified mind is short. Because it can't withstand a lot of things going on, it lacks true ease. You go to a quiet place and pacify your mind, but the defilements are still there. They haven't been pacified. This is where the distinction can be made. The pacification of the mind and the pacification of the defilements are two different things. The mind can become peaceful easily enough when there are few disturbances. But if it feels some kind of threat, then it can't. There's something still there. You can't let go. You can't put it down. Meditators who took refuge in refined states of mind and feared anything that might disturb the bliss of their samadhi tended to become trapped in doomed attempts to manipulate conditions in order to maintain them. The boldness required to look closely at forms, sounds, odors, tastes, tangible objects and mental states would be lacking in them and their defilements left untouched. In contrast, Meditators, at peace after a training in which the calming and wisdom elements had been developed in tandem, would have no fear of sense contact as such, and could let go of attachment at the moment of contact with great fluency. They created no owner of their experience. Lung Po said, at this stage the practice was fitting to be called vipassana, clear seeing of things in their true light. These conventional expressions, samatha and vipassana, if you want to discuss them separately, you can. But if you want to talk about their relationship, then you have to say that they're inseparable, they're connected. A lay person once came and asked me if these days I was teaching people to practice samatha or vipassana. I said, I don't know, they're trained together. If you answer in terms of what actually happens in the mind, then you have to answer like that. Develop them simultaneously because they are synonymous. If you develop samadhi without wisdom, it won't last long. In one of his most celebrated discourses, Luang Po captured this idea with a simile. Wisdom is the movement of samadhi. It's like the phrase, still flowing water. The samatha and vipassana of someone who has developed right practice are in harmony and concord and flow like a single stream of water. In the mind of the practitioner, it's as if still water is flowing. The peace of samadhi incorporates wisdom. There is sila, Samadhi and Panya together. Wherever you sit, it is still, and yet it flows. It's still flowing water. There is Samadhi and Panya, Samatha and Vipassana. The Development of Insight On one occasion, Luang Po taught about the development of insight in terms of the two jhana factors of Vittaka and Vichara. He said that with the mind in a state of calm, a thought might arise, Vittaka, prompting appreciation of it, Vichara, resulting in rapture, which would then propel the mind into a deeper state of lucid calm. On the passing away of that state, the appreciation could resume. If you maintain awareness, you'll get a report from the scene. It's similar to there being a person in a house with six windows. You stand outside watching the windows. 
from outside, you see someone appearing at one window, and then someone else at another, and you assume that there's six people in the house. In fact, it's all just one person moving from window to window. That one person is called three characteristics. Everything is unstable. The three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and not-self are the object of vipassana. Penetrating them will cut off all doubts. As the practice of contemplating whatever phenomena arose in the calm, lucid mind as impermanent, unsatisfactory and not-self progressed, the meditator would experience a disjunction between the knowing and that which was known. It's not that you have to force this disjunction. Through the abandonment, the putting down of attachment, the mind and its object become automatically disjoined. At this stage, Lung Po said that the distinction between the mind and its present object was like that between water and oil. The separation allowed for a constant examination of phenomena. If you take your mind to this point, wherever you go, the mind will be analyzing. This is the enlightenment factor called investigation of Dhamma. It rolls along by itself. And you talk with yourself. You resolve and release the feelings, perceptions, mental formations and consciousness that arise. Nothing can get close to the mind. It has its work to do. This happens naturally. It's not something that you can contrive. He said that it was at this stage that the Buddha's teachings on the foundations of mindfulness became clear. When the membrane connecting the knowing from the known had been cut, then the meditator saw the body in the body, feelings in feelings, states of mind in states of mind, and wholesome and unwholesome dhammas in wholesome and unwholesome dhammas. In other words, they were seen clearly for what they were, without superimposing upon them an independent, self-existent owner. Attainments At a certain stage in meditation practice, the defilements of insight, the vipassanupakilesa, may arise. This list of ten states first appears in the Patisambhidamagga. It consists of illumination, knowledge, rapture, tranquility, bliss, resolution, exertion, assurance, equanimity, and decisiveness. Here, unenlightened meditators come to mistakenly believe that intensely positive mental states, such as illumination and bliss, are indications of enlightenment. You attach to the goodness that arises in your practice. You attach to the purity. You attach to the knowledge. This is called vipassanu. This word vipassanu was Lung Po's own coinage. It was intended for rhetorical purposes to form a pair with vipassana. Through the practice of meditation, defilements can be so effectively suppressed that they may seem to have been completely eradicated. As a result, meditators can develop an unshakable self-confidence in their perceptions. If the teacher refuses to accept the validity of their assumed enlightenment, they interpret it as either a sad misjudgment on the teacher's part, or else as jealousy. Strong measures may be needed in such cases, and a short, sharp shock is usually the recommended cure. In the commentaries, there are stories of awakened monks disabusing others of their delusions by mentally projecting hologram-like moving images of elephants in rut or alluring women in front of them. Caught by surprise, the monk, who had believed himself to have transcended lust and fear of death, is suddenly made painfully aware that the defilements have only been driven underground and are still lying latent in his mind. Lung Po would tell the story of Lung Po Pao, who replied to a nun's declaration that she had become a stream-enterer with a curt, 
Uh, a bit better than a dog. In Thailand, comparing a human being to a dog is considered extremely offensive. The shock and anger that arose in the Mae Chi when spoken to in this unexpected way immediately punctured her conceit. Luang Po once used the same method with a similar result when a Mae Chi at Wat Ba Pong mistakenly believed that she had attained a stage of enlightenment. He listened silently to her claim and then, with his face a stern mask, said coldly, Liar! It was one of the subjects on which Luang Po could be fierce. Don't ever allow yourself to get puffed up. Whatever you become, don't make anything of it. If you become a stream enterer, then leave it at that. If you become an arahant, then leave it at that. Live simply. Keep performing beneficial deeds, and wherever you are, you'll be able to live a normal life. There's no need to go boasting to anybody that you've attained this or become that. Beyond the Monkey One sign that the practice was on the right path was the feeling of sober sadness that arose through constant contemplation of the three characteristics which evolves into nibbita or disenchantment. An illumination takes place and then disenchantment sets in. Disenchantment with this body and mind. Disenchantment with things that arise and pass away and are unstable. You feel it wherever you are. When the mind is disenchanted, its sole interest is in finding the way out of all those things. It sees the suffering inherent in the world, the suffering inherent in life. When the mind has entered this state, then, wherever you sit, there's nothing but impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and not-self. There's nowhere to take hold of any more. If you sit at the foot of a tree, you hear a discourse from the Buddha. If you go to a mountain, you hear a discourse from the Buddha. You see all trees as just one tree. You see all creatures as of one species. You see that nothing deviates from this truth, that all things come into existence, become established, begin to change, and then cease. Luang Po made clear that the disenchantment that he was referring to was not an expression of aversion, for that would have been simply another expression of craving. This disenchantment was the feeling that arose through seeing how mistaken it had been to consider impermanent phenomena as self or belonging to self. It was waking up from the enchantment of body and mind. This is not a monkey feeling disenchanted. It's feeling disenchanted with being a monkey. Luang Po maintained that Mainair Awareness of the present mental object as changeful, fluid, unreliable, of uncertain outcome, was the unerring guide right from the very beginning of meditation practice until its final conclusion. When mental objects were recognized as changeful, he said, it was like breaching the boat of conceit below the waterline, the sense I am listed to one side and sunk. Luang Po taught that complete liberation of the mind was the result of creating a momentum where the tirelessly repeated inner contemplation of the three characteristics, inner mind freed from the hindrances, was complemented by a steady effort to be mindful and alert to the three characteristics in daily life. Eventually, the constant repetition and increased profundity of the contemplation reached a tipping point and bore fruit. Although Luang Po was reticent about talking in detail about the higher stages of practice, he did on occasion make some important observations. In one of his discourses, 
he described the case of the meditator who has a glimpse of Nibbana but is unable to fully integrate his understanding and has to return to the work of wisdom until the mind is fully mature. It's like someone who's in the middle of stepping across a stream, with one foot on the near bank and the other on the far side. They know for sure that there are two sides to the stream, but are unable to cross over it completely, and so they step back. The understanding that there exists two sides to the stream is similar to that of the Godrabhu Pugala or the Godrabhu Chitta. It means that you know the way to go beyond the defilements, but are still unable to go there, and so you step back. Once you know for yourself that this state truly exists, this knowledge remains with you constantly as you continue to practice meditation and develop your bharami. You are both certain of the goal and the most direct way to reach it. The word gotrabu used by Luang Po means change of lineage. In other words, it refers to the difference between the unenlightened and the enlightened mind. Right view has been established. The meditator knows the right and the wrong way of practice. They steer between the extremes of pleasure and pain and gradually move down the path of equanimity but still make mistakes. They know that treading on thorns is painful but they still can't always avoid doing so. But through constantly laying aside the tendency to attach to all that is pleasant and unpleasant in the world of experience, insight deepens until finally they become a knower of the worlds. When the mind has completely seen through personality view, all doubts and attachments to precepts and practices disappear, and now the mind of the practitioner is in the world but not of it. Luang Por made a comparison with the natural separation of oil and paint in a bottle. You are living in the world and following the conventions of the world, but without attaching to them. When you have to go somewhere, you say you are going. When you're coming, you say you are coming. Whatever you're doing, you use the conventions and language of the world but it's like the two liquids in the bottle. They're in the same bottle, but don't mix together. You live in the world, but at the same time, you remain separate from it. The mind doesn't create things around sense contact. Once contact has occurred, you automatically let go. The mind discards the experience. This means that if you're attracted to something, you experience the attraction in the mind, but don't attach or hold on fast to it. If you have a reaction of aversion, there is simply the experience of aversion arising in the mind and nothing more. There isn't any sense of self arising that attaches and gives meaning and importance to the aversion. In other words, the mind knows how to let go. It knows how to set things aside. Why is it able to let go and put things down? Because the presence of insight means you can clearly see the harmful results that come from attaching to all those mental states. When you see forms, the mind remains undisturbed. When you hear sounds, it remains undisturbed. The mind neither takes a position for or against any sense objects experienced. This is the same for all sense contact, whether it be through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body or mind. Whatever thoughts arise in the mind can't disturb you you are able to let go. You may perceive something as desirable, but you don't attach to that perception or give it any special importance. 
it simply becomes a condition of mind to be observed without attachment. This is what the Buddha described as experiencing sense objects as just that much. The sense bases are still functioning and experiencing sense objects, but without the process of attachment stimulating movements to and fro in the mind. Having gained such clear and penetrating insight means it is sustained at all times, whether you are sitting meditation with your eyes closed, or even if you're doing something with your eyes open. Whatever situation you find yourself in, be it in formal meditation or not, the clarity of insight remains. When you have unwavering mindfulness of the mind within the mind, you don't forget yourself, whether standing, walking, sitting or lying down. The awareness within makes it impossible to lose mindfulness. It's a state of awareness that prevents you forgetting yourself. Mindfulness has become so strong that it's self-sustaining to the point where it becomes the natural state of the mind. These are the results of training and cultivating the mind, and it's here where you go beyond doubt. Luang Paul said that realizing that the constant arising and passing away of all phenomena in accordance with causes and conditions is a fixed, invariable truth, is to find the only kind of permanence that exists. Realizing this truth of an unchanging changefulness is, he said, the end of the path that needs to be followed. In terms of the Four Noble Truths, the framework for all of Luang Por's practice and teaching, by bringing the eight factors of the Noble Path to maturity, suffering is comprehended. And with the factors sustaining suffering abandoned, suffering ceases. Luang Por said, It's as if an arrow has been pulled out of your heart.